Welcome back to another episode of That's So Second Millennium. I am really pleased and honored to have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Jill Pasteris at Washington University. In St. Louis. Hello. Um, really grateful that you agreed to talk. So um, we, uh, of course, you know, again, full disclosure, uh, Jill was my mineralogy professor back in the 20th century. Of course, the name of the podcast is That's So Second Millennium, which is a, it's an in-joke in many, many ways. Uh, but, uh, back at, back in, I think it was the fall of 1998. So, and ever since that semester, I have told, uh, you know, there, I had three favorite professors at WashU and you're definitely one of them. And I've always told people that Jill Pasteris could teach phase diagrams to third graders. <laughs> you, That's a great compliment. Thank I mean, you. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you could do eutectics and paratectics and, you know, you just laid it out. So, I mean, and, and that was, it was such a great class because I was learning, I mean, of course I was at college, so it was you know, by the time I had ended, I had wound up high school at my little public school in Indiana. I was, you know, not learning new things anymore. <laughs> so that was the great thing about coming to, to Wash U, and I started learning new things again. Earth forces, there were a lot of new concepts yes, in that yes, class. Right. And, and earth materials, just, I was just, I was just in awe. Just, just looking at all of this, I had never thought, you know, existed. The thermodynamics and, and the way that, that plays out in phase diagrams and how materials actually behave. But that's so, yeah. So I, I really wanted to uh, come back and, you know, and in the context of that so second millennium being relationships between faith and science um, to talk a little bit about it, especially from the geoscience perspective, since after all, we're both geoscientists. Yes. Um, and in previous episodes, I've talked a little bit about, you know, my take on, you know, where that is, because, you know, every science is a little different. I've I've known a number of, well, of course. The Society of Catholic Scientists, which we talked about in previous episodes, is pretty much run by Catholic physicists. Um, there are quite a number of those. Um, but, of course, biology, there's a different different dynamic, and I think there's still a different dynamic in the geosciences. So, But to start out with, um, could you just tell us a little bit about your background and your career and um, you know, anything, any other details you want to, you know, to introduce? You know, uh, what's uh, your your life and your career to, to the audience. Okay. Well, I, maybe I should begin by saying I did grow up in a Christian uh, family mm-hmm. and so went to church from a very young age. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, I was always interested in the stuff around me, always picking up pebbles and putting them in my pocket and so forth. And yeah. I remember when I uh, proudly announced to the aunts and uncles and cousins that I, I was going to go to college and study geology. Nobody mm-hmm. thought that was odd at all because yeah. I've been messing around with rocks <laughs> since I was a little kid. You've been preparing them for yes, that announcement. right, right. Yeah. It's no yeah. big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up uh, outside of Philadelphia, one of the western okay. suburbs of Philadelphia. Okay, okay. And uh, went to college in that same area. Went to Bryn Mawr mm-hmm. College outside Brimmer. of Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah. Really great geology department. Mm-hmm. Uh, just four faculty, so we got to know the faculty very well. Yeah. So yeah. it's a it's a good good way to, to to learn a subject. As you said, it really matters who's teaching it and what the whole environment is like. It sure does. Yeah, it makes a difference. Yeah. But uh, I um, uh, then I, I went on to graduate school at, at, at Yale. Um, in between, actually, I spent uh, a, a year in Germany studying geology. So got okay. to talked okay, to yeah. other kinds of people and yeah. uh, uh, found a, a friend there who, who decided she had just uh, come to Heidelberg, which is where I was studying. She was yeah. a German from another uh, part of Germany. 
Uh, and so we both went to church together, and so this yeah. was very, uh, very nice experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To, to was see. it a Lutheran church there, I, or? Yeah, yes, they just called it the evangelical was the term okay. that they were using. Yeah. Yes, I, yeah. I realized there weren't all the subdivisions that we had. Right. Um, Americans. Yes. Do that sometimes. We do tend to chop things up. <laughs> we do. Um, so, yeah. uh, so that that was that was a very nice experience uh, mm-hmm. uh, for me. Uh, and then I, I came here to Washington University and started teaching uh, in January of 1980. So okay. I've been here almost 40 years and yeah. taught, a, taught a lot of students uh, yeah. in, in, in that time. Um, I've worked on various sorts of projects. One of them uh, that's kept me busy for about the past 20 years actually is working on the mineral in bone. Yeah. Uh, and so I've ended up working with quite a few medical people and, and, mm-hmm. and people with biology sorts of backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, in addition to the geologists I worked with a lot earlier in my career. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it's always interesting to me, um, sometimes something about religion or faith will come up and you'll say, oh gosh, I didn't yeah. know he was Christian too. Right. And so yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's encouraging to, yeah. to, to uh, encounter, even if we don't speak about it a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. Then maybe just... Uh... Bill and I just talked to Stephen Barr. This is being recorded on November 9th, and uh, the interview with Stephen Barr, which actually has not posted yet, that's going to come up on Monday. If I get it edited by Monday, which I will, I better. <laughs> had, a, had an episode every week, and uh, this is not the time to uh, to uh, fall down on the job, but, about that. but I'll have to cram it in at some point this weekend. But uh, yeah, he was talking about you know like that's the whole reason he's you know he and some some other colleagues have started the Society of Catholic Scientists specifically is to try to I mean there's this sense in academia that we're all we're all these isolated you know like strange people that you know we're all adrift by ourselves and that's well, first of all it's not the case and why would we get into science if we didn't care about how things actually are yes yes <laughs> you have a great. That great uh, quotation, you have a lot of great quotations on your uh, bulletin oh. board here that the, we will not show up on the video feed. That's a podcast joke, by the way. <laughs> um, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away by Philip K. Dick. That's a great, that's a great, uh, a, a little uh, antidote for uh, uh, some philosophical trends of the past few centuries. <laughs> yes, yes. I like this one, too. Uh-huh. We, oh yeah, we, we are we are not human beings going through a temporary spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings going through a temporary human experience. I, I like have that. Yeah, I have someone in, uh, that I talk to every week up in Indianapolis. Who, uh, that's actually been one of the, the major focuses of our conversations. Is right. is that is that yes. specifically? So yeah, that's that's yeah, uh, it's. You don't understand human beings unless you understand, I mean, well, which, yeah, how many of us understand human beings, but yes. uh, you're obviously sort of crippling yourself in the attempt by, by cutting that off. Yes, yes. Yeah. By so. not thinking about them as deeper than just the typical everyday yeah. interaction. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, what the... Because actually, when I was, of course, you know, you were talking about just the last twenty years, and uh, I, I actually was here about you know, twenty years ago, um, and you, I, you know, it, you were talking about the subject matter that you were studying being, you know, among other things, focused on bioappetite. Well, yes. I mean, appetite yes. specifically, the mineral right. appetite would be what's um, in bone. Do, have you uh, included any studies of other, you know, 
you know, phylums of animals. You're looking at, say, mollusks growing carbonate or... Well, I didn't get into the carbonate business. Um, each one of these has its all of the literature surrounding it. And so yeah. uh, I've, I've had so much to deal with. I frankly thought it would be a lot easier to uh, tidy up what I perceived to be some loose ends yeah. 20 years ago <laughs> about the mineral and bone because there weren't too many yeah. mineralogists working Studying on it at, at, at the time. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it, the more I got into it, the more I realized why there were still loose ends to tidy up because it actually turned out to be much more complex than I thought. Yeah. Uh, and the interesting... It's like the TARDIS. It's bigger on the inside than it was on the outside. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Well, it, it just turns out to be an incredibly interesting mineral, and so there are all mm-hmm. kinds of applications, environmental remediation and so forth, yeah. with respect to appetite. Yeah. Uh, and so I take these little forays sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, recently, Environmental remediation in the context of reducing well, phosphates in... Well, you you could you could talk about taking phosphates out, out of the water system yeah. when, when they are too high of a concentration and causing eutrophication, but also the fact that the mineral appetite uh, is supposed to be able to incorporate half the elements on the periodic table. True. Uh, And so the other thing is that phosphates by nature are are low-solubility minerals. They sure are. Uh, Uranyl phosphates in particular are very low-solubility. Well, the same with lead phosphates, luckily. Yeah. Uh, And so if you would like to get lead out of the soil system or out of the water system... If you to make introduce it, phosphate... To make it, it unavailable. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Lower so, solubility dramatically. Yes. Yeah. And, and so it's no longer, you know, it's, it's only at a very, very low level dissolved mm-hmm. in the water anymore. Yeah. Uh, and so... Uh, and so that's darn it, handy. Yes, it, it, it is. And and so there, there are other uh, aspects where appetite can remove something unwanted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the lead can actually... Will will it actually displace calcium in the uh, appetite structure? It, it. What I'm thinking about is where you have dissolved components in in the in the water. So the phosphates dissolve, okay. the leads dissolve, okay. the calcium's dissolved, uh, and where you don't have a, a high enough concentration of the calcium mm-hmm. to to create uh, an appetite, a calcium appetite. Yeah. But rather, you have sufficient concentration of lead uh-huh. to form the lead phosphate. Okay. Um, I'm working with a group actually over in uh, environmental engineering uh, mm-hmm. here, uh, environmental chemistry, uh, actually. Yeah. Uh, and um, we were looking into some of these um, uh, appetite-structured combination calcium-lead phosphates Okay. But in the work yeah. we were doing, we we didn't find any forming. We thought we might, uh-huh. um, and so are there some of those known? There have been it, some structures solved. It, of, yes, yes. So it does occur geologically. They're not real abundant, but they yeah. they do occur. And uh, is that structure a little bit like dolomite, where you sort of segregate out the lead and the calcium? To, I have to go back and look again. It, it's okay. actually been a couple of years since I looked into sure. it. We sort of got excited that, oh, here we have this geological analog, and it will help us because then we'll know what to look for. Uh And Um, it turns out it doesn't quite work that way. Yes, we haven't haven't found it. And and so there are things we can do, you know, in beakers in the lab, uh, but that have not panned out in the environmental remediation business. Yeah. 
yeah, we talk in environmental science, we talk about bench scale studies and then pilot scale studies yes. where you actually go out in the, in the wild and see if it works at all. And there's, there's a lot of things that stop between the bench and pilot. Yes. Yes. Well, the thing we're working on right now uh, is, uh, trying to prevent people from getting lead poisoning when you have lead pipes that lead from the sure. street, the main, the water main, uh, to your home. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's very interesting because uh, most of the old lead pipes uh, have very nice mineral scales on yeah. them. Uh, and they had two ways of, of keeping the lead concentration down in, yeah. the, in the water. The one is that they can precipitate out. And whatever their solubility is, that limits the amount of, of lead that is going to be in the water. Yeah. And then, of course, there's just the simple incrustation yeah. of, of keeping at least <laughs> You're the physically lead isolating. Yes, right. <laughs> right. right. That's, that'll always do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and so we, we uh, um, are exploring exactly what happens when you add phosphate mm-hmm. to the water. Because yeah. it's it's known to drop the the lead concentrations way down. Yeah. Uh, but uh, luckily, uh, these environmental uh, uh, engineers, uh, chemical engineers, wanted to actually monitor the whole development of scales on on new raw lead pipes. Yeah. Uh, to the point where they were then going to add phosphate, and so they're there now. And we're just mm-hmm. beginning to see. So what actually happens? Yeah. Um, and how fast is the other thing how fast can you make it happen yeah so that if you have a situation like flint where they made some really bad mistakes yeah and all the scales got dissolved away yeah um how might you more quickly get yeah. new scale to form yeah yeah and treat it so that it's yeah. yeah it's a lot more difficult and slower yeah than we had hoped yeah, yeah. that's that's life, right? That's, that is life. That is life. That is Usually life. we yeah. geologists don't complain about things not happening fast because we have millions of years. Yeah. But in this case, in this, yeah. when it's an environmental remediation, that's you don't right. have millions yeah. of years. Yeah, you don't. You don't. Yeah. That's, that, that, yeah. Environmental geology is, is a different kettle of fish when you're talking about things that humans have done to, uh, yeah. Yeah. To the subsurface or to our own infrastructure in this case. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. The, analogy, the analogy of the natural world to uh, what happens in our own built environments. Um, so uh, at least when I was here, one of the main uh, analytical techniques you were using was Raman spectroscopy. Is yes. Is that a big uh, part it, of your work still? Yes. Yes, it is. And in fact, that's one of uh, our major contributions to to this collaborative effort led led by my colleague over uh, in environmental engineering, mm-hmm. and so uh, we yes we've been monitoring. They they uh, have their own system of pipes they've set up, and they mm-hmm. were very good about making them little segments with uh, little PVC connectors between, so they can uh, at various time intervals pull out a whole pipe segment. Yeah. Uh, and, and then various analytical techniques will be applied to see, so what has precipitated thus yeah. far and how thick are these mineral scales? And, yeah. and they aren't thick. Right. Like 15 micrometers. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's sufficient. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so we've been doing the Raman. It's been, been quite exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. to, to do this. So that's almost like thin film type work. It, it, it really is. And, yeah. and, uh, because uh, you know some of these phases are are really uh, not very transmissive. The, right. the the laser light that we're using isn't going to very great depth. So we mm-hmm. so we typically really the skin are depth looking could be skin less depth. than yes. that fifteen microns. Right, yeah. right. But they also do cross sections, and so we've done cross section work. 
Yeah. Uh, and then they'll also do SEM uh, mm-hmm. and get um, chemical analyses from the uh, uh, EDS detection. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that, you, can get, you can get chemistry from that. Uh, SEM will tell you the morphology of what's growing. Right, right. But you will be able to look at a different aspect of the chemistry, the structure. Right. The, the atomic link structure. Of, yeah, the yeah. link between the composition and the structure. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. putting them all together is very interesting to watch what's going on. Uh, yeah. Raman is just a really handy technique um, that's been proposed for use on all sorts of uh, space probes, you know, uh, landers, yes. rovers. Right, right. Is, is the Mars... I think Mars 2020, Mars if 2020 I'm not supposed mistaken, to have a is supposed to have a Raman on yeah. it. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And one of my colleagues, you, you probably overlapped with uh, Alian Wong. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. so she, she is very yeah, much involved right. in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's, she's in, she's on that side. Where, where is she now? She's up on the third floor. Oh, okay. She's still here. She's still here. She's still yes, here. yes. Okay. Yeah. She's Cause now, this, this is after all the Earth and Planetary Science that's Department right, at Washington right. University. Yeah. So she's a, a research professor, research full professor. Okay. Um, yeah. and is continuing her work. Yes. Yeah. So, well. She's going to be really excited about the Mars 2020 mission. Then. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But the technology has just changed. So, I mean, it's unbelievable. First of all, lasers, I mean, yeah. <laughs> laser pointers. I mean, my gosh, the thought yeah. of that 35 in, years yeah, ago. In, in 1980, the fact yeah. that we would just be hand, you know, handling lasers and yes. using them to indicate things. Right, and kids would be playing with their cats with them. I mean, you know, <laughs> this is what, yes. this would have blown yeah. somebody's mind if you yeah. said, if you go back picture and this. This is what we're going to do with this amazing technology, right. I guess. That's yes, right. laser pointers and cat videos, but yes. Right. <laughs> right. But the miniaturization of everything is remarkable. And yeah. so you have these handheld Raman systems now. Yeah. And, just yeah. really, well, and of course, the amount of data you can handle in a given space is yes, incredible. Yes, Just incredible. So, right. So now, like Alion uh, 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 does uh, uh, mapping, uh, mm-hmm. and so you you have the spatial yeah. parameters, and then you have the spectral parameters overlaid on the exact position. A spectrum where you from every point and, on your raster of that, the surface. That, that, that's right. All right. So that you make, adds up fast. Yes, Raman images, and so yeah. yes, so the computers had yeah. also advanced just to handle. Yeah. The amounts of data that were were, were coming off. Yeah. So it's it, it's a really burgeoning field. I don't know how many different companies make Raman instruments now. It's yeah. Probably like a dozen or something. Yeah. 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 That's at the risk of being a little too nerdy. Let's go a little bit into what Raman scattering even is. I mean, it's the basis of. So there is also. This is where I'm sort of. Yeah, maybe I should have done a little bit more reading for the podcast. I apologize. Because uh, <laughs> there's also Compton scattering, of course, which is very relevant to WashU because we're at uh, Arthur yes, Holly Compton's Compton. institution. Right, right. And then there's Rayleigh scattering, as I recall. Yes, yes. I think Raman and Rayleigh are the two that are sort of, you know, people but the, elastic and inelastic scattering. Right, right. And, and, well, and then there's infrared, which I call the, the, the cousin of Raman that yeah. more people are, are yeah. familiar with. Yes, yeah, so it's a... It, Raman is a scattering phenomenon, mm-hmm. uh, and what we're doing is we're using the we need it lasers. So yeah. the Raman effect, I think, was it's been known now for a hundred years, uh, but being able to apply it was difficult because you needed first of all an exceedingly strong light source, yeah, uh, and you really want to use just one wavelength so you know what yeah. the world. You stuck in so you can see what comes back comes out back again. Out. Yes. And so lasers are great for, for both. Yeah. And so that when the lasers came in, that's when the development of, of many kinds of Raman systems, including 
these ones hooked up to microscopes, yeah. that's when they really got going. Yeah. So you, you've got the laser light and it, all the photons. We can mm. think about yeah, monochromatic photons, monochromatic all the same en- energy, energy, all the same wavelength, wavelength and the same yeah. frequency. Same frequency, yeah. Uh, and so that's what you uh, interact with your sample, mm-hmm. and then you monitor the scattered light that comes back. Mm-hmm. And so most of the light that scatters back comes back with the same energy and wavelength of photons yeah. that you put in. Yeah. But that's the really scattering, scattering. And that's what we're not interested in. Right, yeah. That's the boring stuff. Yeah. But then... Some fraction of it will come some, back. Like that's different. one in 10 it's, million photons? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so That's why you need so much light. <laughs> yes, and right. This is the other This is the other thing. There were only certain systems that... Uh, certain uh, materials that could be operated on by Raman because it's such a, a weak effect. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so you need it particular materials and then you need a better detectors and we got those. Yeah. Uh, and so we're looking then at the difference between, um, I'll say the wavelength, but we're really looking at the frequency, right? the, the wavelength of Energy. what you put in. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and what scatters back out. Yeah. And so you get scattering coming back out at mm-hmm. different wavelengths and different frequencies, different yeah. energies than what you put in. And so it's the delta energy yeah. that's really important. That's the, the vibrational energy that, that tells us about the bond strength and, and mm-hmm. uh, even something about the, the masses of the bonded elements so that if you replace a, a, a lighter element with a heavier element, you'll see this Raman peak move you'll see a because, move, yeah. of, because of the mass difference. And so yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a very powerful technique mm-hmm. um, and at its most basic use it's a great finger printer yeah uh, because yeah. just like every crystalline material has a very specific x-ray diffraction pattern mm-hmm. it has a very specific raman pattern yeah. Um, yeah and the raman is essentially for most things non-destructive yes uh and there are occasionally second, things that are so dark that you can yes, shoot a <laughs> you sure can and, and i found out very early on much to my embarrassment that um, I had a green laser and someone gave me a very nice red sample. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I should have looked more at the color charts. Things that are red really strongly absorb like green. that is green. And I managed to drill a hole uh-huh. into the person's you, sample. You thermally ablated. Uh, yes, the, uh, exactly. Very rapidly. Very effectively. <laughs> but most, for most things, it's, yeah. it's an excellent uh, way of making an identification without having to grind the sample up or... Yeah put a carbon coat on it or work yeah. under a vacuum. Whenever you're dealing with electrons, you need to put a conductive film over yes. the top of it or other, otherwise you really blow up the sample. That's right. Yeah. So I was showing off again. I actually showed my class in two different groups how, mm-hmm. how neat Raman was. Yeah. And so I did my favorite sort of deal where I take my wedding ring. My husband and I uh, got married in grad school, so the three little diamonds are really little, okay? Yes. So I always joke that when I crank, <laughs> crank up the power on the microscope, it, it just takes up the whole field. Right. But I just took it. I uh, didn't clean my, my yeah. ring. It's still on my hand. Yeah. I stuck it under. I managed to manipulate it so we could all see it on the screen. Yeah. I let the laser beam down, and in one second, we knew that it truly was diamond and not yeah. glass, Right. which is like no sample prep. Right. Um, that's, and, and that's impressive. It, it, it yeah. is. It that's, really, it really I'm trying is. to put things in an electron microscope or, or even even X-ray diffraction. Yeah, it's sort of te- tedious. Yeah. And, and you need a certain amount. 
In fact, often I've been given things to analyze, not because they couldn't be analyzed by x-ray diffraction, but there was just a little tiny grain. Right. And one wanted to know, what is that grain? I don't think the rest of the sample is the same thing, so I'm not going to grind it all together. Um, That's that's problematic. Yes. It's difficult to collimate, to to cut x-ray beams down to a given size the way you can with light. We know so many techniques for handling light. Yes, uh, yes. And lasers themselves lend themselves to that, you know, being very, very focused. Right. And, yeah. well, that was another big breakthrough was fiber optics. Fiber when optics, When this came yeah. in, in the old days, we might take as much as a week to right. align the laser beam from the, uh-huh. from the laser up and into the microscope, uh-huh. where everything had to be at right angles and centered on mirrors and so forth. Uh-huh. Uh, and so every time you made an adjustment, then you realized, no, I need to go back down to the laser and start over again. Across. <laughs> but now, I, 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 I love yeah. the fiber optics. I say it's like a garden hose. You hook it at one end, you hook it at the other. Yeah. And, and in this case, the light instead of the, the water comes out. comes right out. No, yeah. no alignment. It just yeah. it's there. Yeah. Alignment, the bane of experimental oh, yes. work. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yeah. yes. Whether you're working with X-rays or light or any kind of radiation, yeah, yes, making right. sure that making sure that it's lined up properly. And, and as, as you heard, we, we couldn't be throwing away photons. We had few enough of them That's right. coming through. Yeah, because yeah. because you, you think about the data collection for this, you've got your Rayleigh peak at X height, and then at one twenty millionth of that height, maybe is the next whatever yes. the Stokes, you know, positive or negative, or I guess they're called, you know, when you've yes. added a little bit of energy from the crystal or subtracted exactly. a little bit of energy. Yes, yes. It sh- well, should well, almost always be symmetric. So, yes. It should oh. be the same amount of energy gain uh, or loss. Yes, so the peak positions are symmetric with respect to the zero where the, yeah. where the laser line is, but your, where you're losing the energy is, is, is many times stronger in intensity. Right. Of course, the probability of, of losing is yeah. a lot more than having somehow yeah. been elevated in there. Right, because you'd be, you'd be stealing energy from the lattice. Yes, yeah. yes. So, so essentially, you'll, and which one is that? Stokes or anti-Stokes? Stokes. Stokes, Stokes, Stokes is the, the loss. Is, is, okay. is the, yes, yes, the, yeah. the more prominent one. So yes. if you see, so if you see a Raman spectrum in a paper, it's generally the, just the Stokes lines. Yes, yes. Yeah. Although, Actually, my instrument can't very readily do the anti-Stokes. A lot of instruments can't anymore. But for yeah. people who want to know about temperatures of things, it's actually yeah. interesting. The probability for the anti-Stokes is very much temperature dependent. Yeah. And so if you can do both, then you could establish then, what temperature you're working yeah. at. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, it's, like, I mean, it's like you were talking about earlier, the, the idea of fingerprinting. Well, yes, you can do it at that level. Uh, yes. And and not think about and like I said in Latin class, like my uh, my instructor I think in second semester Latin said, and don't sweat the comprehension mode. You know, you can just okay, there's a line here. Yeah, there's supposed to be a line here for appetite. All right, next. <laughs> yes, uh, you could. You could but use the fact that the line way. is there, it's there for a reason. Yes, and you can you can dig into that. Yes, and start to look at the intensities and you know dig tease out a whole bunch of physics and right and and uh, it's, it's nice. If- Thing isn't as well crystalline. Yeah. The, the peak is broadened, yeah. much analogous to X-ray diffraction. Yeah. Uh, and as I said, if if, uh, if if the peak's not dead on where you expect it, then you say, "I'll bet this isn't a pure calcium appetite." You know, right. I wonder what else is substituted into it. What else is in there? Yes. Yeah. And perhaps by looking, you can tell whether it's a heavier or lighter element right. by which way the shift which is going. Way, which way the shift yeah. is going? Yeah. This was a break in the conversation, so I cut the interview here. Be sure to join us next week for the continuation as we discuss uncertainty and faith from the perspective of two Christian scientists. 
and of course, swap a few more mineralogy war stories. See you next week. <laughs>